There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Content is Queen is proud to present you with the Black Kings this season in collaboration with the Social Mobility Commission. You are listening to the Wannabe podcast where you can get a behind the scenes look at the opportunities available in the creative and entertainment industries, all so that you can get to where you want to be in 30 minutes or less. I am, of course, your host, Imriel Morgan. This is a special Black History Month mini-series that we've put together for you. I would like to give a huge thank you to the Social Mobility Commission who have helped me explore how early life opportunities can improve or hinder your chances in life. According to a poll they released, 44% say that where you end up in society is largely determined by your background. Through this series, I hope you come to learn how each guest has leveraged their opportunities to create a better life for themselves in spite of their background and circumstances. On to this week's incredibly talented guest. Alexis French is a contemporary composer, pianist and producer. Alexis started playing the piano at just four years old. His aptitude for the instrument placed him at the Royal Academy of Music and he received a scholarship to train at the Purcell School, Britain's oldest specialist music school, before training at the world-renowned Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Alexis's music is like a warm hug that has the ability to just calm the brain and soothe you into a flow state. In today's episode, we explore the origins of his talent and how he's navigated a career in classical music. He reveals how he blended his culture and training to develop his unique style of music. We also uncover the power of authenticity in determining what good sounds like. You're gonna love it. Who did you want to be before you became who you are today and why? So I think that I, rather than being one individual or wanting to be one individual, I think I wanted to be like a portmanteau of a few individuals, if that's allowed. Mm-hmm. So one of whom would have been certainly Keith Jarrett, renowned pianist, but also improviser, composer. He was very pioneering in a sense that, um, you know, post Chopin, post Liszt, we're talking about a contemporary figure here, Keith Jarrett. Yeah. This was one person who gave concerts worldwide as an improvising performer. And that's quite a new concept, certainly for the 21st century. But I also then thought, well, if I could be part him and also part Glenn Gould, who was this maverick, uh, idiosyncratic Canadian pianist virtuoso, who I rather loved, who was a bit of a hermit (laughs) and quite a polymath as well. So I thought, well, a bit of him, a bit of Horowitz, traditional sort of virtuoso, a bit of John Williams, a film composer. So actually, I I couldn't see that one person. Yeah. But that certainly didn't didn't hurt me and it didn't hold me back at all. I just thought, I'll have a little bit of that, a little bit of that, and I'll make my own pathway. That's awesome. In terms of school... 
I know that you went to the Purcell School and later the Royal Academy of Music. What was that like for you? Earlier, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I went, yeah, I went to the Royal Academy earlier than Purcell. Yeah. And they were great places, awesome places. Loved the Royal Academy of Music. So I was there when I was 11 and studied with incredible professors and the environment was so enriching so many different ways and met some great people and you know, my contemporaries peers and had a lot of fun as well so yeah I remember that time with such fondness Purcell school was I went there because I wanted to be in that kind of environment every day mm-hmm. that specialist musical environment and it was this very cute sort of specialist music private school up on Harrow Hill as it was then next to next to the boys school next to Harrow boys school yeah and the musical provision was excellent as you can imagine it didn't have a lot else I seem to recall so there was no sporting program for instance oh right that's Uh, so interesting there was just there was you know I'm probably doing them a disservice (laughs) but I certainly I don't remember anything significant perhaps I'll leave it at that um we used to play little bits of football in the orchard that we'd sort of arranged ourselves but but other than that uh nothing to speak of but again I'm 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 grateful for all those years I'm grateful for my education and certainly Purcell and and Royal Academy stood me in very good stead yeah I mean I completely understand the gratitude aspect of it, but did you actually feel like maybe you missed out a little bit on other bits of school or was that just not a consideration at the time? Yeah, In some ways, yes, but very specific ways. I loved chemistry mm-hmm. and I loved chemistry and maths. And obviously Purcell School had maths as a subject. Sure. It would have been a very strange school <laughs> if that were not the case. But they didn't have chemistry. So I came from a school, I came from a state school, I was at a state school for a year. Yeah. And then I left, I remember consulting with the Royal Academy, myself, this is not through my dad, but just simply As you as a... As as an 11 11 year old (laughs) or whatever I was. So I said, look, I want to change schools. I'm at this school currently and I've drawn up a shortlist, which I did. So I drew up a shortlist of Millfield School, Radley College Uh and Purcell School. Radley is a quite a, a famous boys school uh, Millfield is this sporting titan of a school okay and obviously Purcell being a specialist and then I wrote to those headmasters I seem to recall oh wow <laughs> to arrange no I did arrange, I uh, to arrange meetings and then Royal Academy said look you really need to be going to Purcell school so I I, I did and uh I think there are a few twists and turns in between, but certainly that's how I remember it. That's so interesting. Um, I'm actually personally intrigued about the experience of being at a private school and that transition from state to private. Was it stark or Mm. did you find that actually because you are all people that love music and you had that common ground and you had that experience at the Royal Academy, like was Mm. it actually quite an easy transition? What was that like for you? The transition itself was very freeing. Oh, wow. The big thing was that there was no school uniform at Purcell School. So I could just turn up in my shorts, whatever, you know. I could just turn up ready to play football in the orchard. Yeah. And, you know, whatever I decided was the, you know, the co-curricular priority for the day. That's what I would turn up in. And and that was, and, so I, and I boarded at that times. 
So I wasn't living at home, so okay. I, was, I, was, I was boarding. And so tremendous amount of freedom for the very, very first time. You know, my parents are wonderful, but being away from them was was wonderful too. <laughs> and also I met my first black friend. Oh, wow. At that, that school? Wasn't in, at Purcell School. And that was such a powerful moment for me. This is Kwame, who I mentioned earlier. Yes, of course. And... Um, you know, Royal Academy at that time, Royal Academy Music, I don't remember. Well, I remember one, there was one girl there who was a close friend of mine. And, but that was it in the, you know, the entire constituency. Mm-hmm. And I met my best friend as he became at uh, Purcell School and felt incredibly, I just felt immediately at home as if I belonged there. It was the most incredible place. And the headmaster was a beautiful man called Mr. Bain, John Bain. And um, yeah, I just, it was a very forgiving school, very understanding. They understood, obviously, gifted children mm-hmm. sometimes were very spirited. And we were incredibly <laughs> spirited a lot of the time. But they understood and somehow marshaled us in exactly the right way. That sounds magical. I want to go to this place. <laughs> I feel like I missed up. <laughs> I well, do you know what? I nearly didn't go. It was only because I, I realised when I was at Royal Academy, I realised no one went to a school like I did. No one went to state school. Yeah. And they were all coming there. And I just thought, what am I doing? So that's when I drew up my shortlist. And, you know, part of the issue Lots of these schools have major scholarships. You know, mm-hmm. I, I got my fees were paid via a scheme. The Surrey County Council had a scheme called the Scheme for Exceptionally Gifted Children, which I auditioned for. Okay. And that paid for, for everything through my childhood. Amazing. But a, lots of these schools now have scholarships. And a major issue is that many people don't feel that those schools are for them. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, they're doing a job of outreach and trying to get out there and trying to attract many of these students to come and and look. And and for many of them, the message is, come and have a look at us. You know, this may well be the right destination for you. But my experience of those schools, certainly as a youngster, was incredibly welcoming. I never had any issues at all of being that sole black boy Mm -hmm. until a certain point, obviously. I can recall one thing when I was at my state school, perhaps one or two. That might have been because I was just incredibly robust. And (laughs) I think I was, actually. I was that kind of boy who just didn't take any nonsense. But, um, yeah, I had a really, a really rich childhood. Sounds fantastic. I know a lot of people listening have different Mm. types of parents who probably Mm. don't value a career in music or value a career in the arts at all really and don't see that Mm. being a place where you can be successful where you can make a decent living or money from it Mm. so Mm. yeah what was that like with your parents well firstly to address that point I think I think you're, you're you're right of course and I don't think it's because parents don't value the arts necessarily I think mm. they it's because they consider it too precarious as a career and it may even be particularly so or with boys rather than girls you know father to boy thinking you know no son of mine's going to be a ballet dancer or no son of mine's going to be d- d- doing this you know I'd much rather they'd had a solid proper career where you can go and look after your family I I never had I never had those conversations with my father 
simply because, you know, from as, as far back as I can remember, from four or five, that was always my pathway. Mm-hmm. And the conversations I used to have with my dad, I remember, were really about things like, you know, you need to be studying this because you need to make sure you can speak in an erudite fashion after your concerts or whatever. It was always about preparation for that career, never dissuading. And I think the other point to make about the arts careers and music is there are so many of them. I mean, just looking outside of being that person on a stage, whether you're a composer, performer, dancer, there are so many support, wonderfully creative supporting careers mm-hmm. that make up the world of the arts industry. So, whether, you know, of course, not everybody knows that. If you're not in, in it, you don't necessarily know how many rewarding and potentially lucrative careers there are in the world of music and yes, the arts. Of course. And, and I think there's a job to do there, perhaps, in just terms of informing people, letting them know, which we are doing now. Exactly. Course. I was just going to say that yes. very same thing. Um, I met a movement yeah. director on the last season and I was just like, my mind was completely blown. I was like, what is a movement director? What does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she, there you go. Yeah, Absolutely. That's like, uh, it was a black woman and I was just like, I honestly like couldn't even fathom that this was yeah. something that you could do and be paid to do <laughs> um, yes, and I think yes. that that's just like the beauty of the arts and the creative industry is that, that you can have this lane and completely dominate and rise up quite quickly in these spaces but it's yeah. just knowing that mm. that opportunity exists so yeah you're completely right yeah. um, speak to me about the piano because that is what you do you do it so beautifully how did you come to develop your style and your way of creating? Like, talk me through that process for you. What I do now is very much informed by my formative years and my formative listening. And it was it was a very Catholic broad church in terms of my listening experiences. All the things you would expect, I guess, uh, he says, making a sweeping generalisation <laughs> about West Indian families. But, um, you know, so Marvin Gaye, Bob Marley, mm-hmm. you know, big... A reggae signature, but also uh, Motown, as I said, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder. That my house was filled with with that music, mm-hmm. and I don't remember my dad introducing me to to classical music, but I found it very quickly for myself. Mozart, Bach, Savalia de Saint Georges, and uh, this incredible. 18th century black uh, classical composer, and then that led me to obviously my 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 early career my practice the competitions I used to do immerse myself in in the classical canon and then I came out of that as a result of circumstances and having done that whole concerts thing of, of playing the list and the Beethoven and wanted to as a, as a result of something reinvent myself and reconnect with the world musically but taking all of me all of the parts of me not just that very schooled classical precision but all of the sensibility that I remember that warmth that love that soulfulness that I remember from my childhood listening to those soul greats but fusing it with the lyricism of uh, classical music and so that it's it's really something that happened to me when in my I guess in my 20s when I suddenly came into being and I remember writing on a cassette we used to have these things yeah uh, <laughs> I'm called, old enough to remember those <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember writing down classical soul nice and this new type of music 
that I wanted to write. And then from then on, that's really marked the start of that slightly different journey coming out of the rigor of pure academic classical music, Mm -hmm. but fusing it with this new type of tonality and voice, if you like. Were you ever scared of making that step? Because it is so distinct and different in many ways. And it's new. So were you ever Hmm. worried about criticism or people just kind of turning away from it or anything like that? No, I was very confident in it. But I have to say that coming out of that world, you know, and again, after those two places, the Purcell School Royal Academy, I then went to the Guildhall uh, School of Music and Drama and uh, studied there and, you know, studied with you know, people like Lutoslawski, I remember, and really hardcore composition, academic composition, and and amazing professors. But you are then schooled in that very rigorous side of classical music that people, the majority of people certainly don't really get. Mm-hmm. You know, it's atonal music, and it's all about... And to be honest with you, I have to say that back then you were encouraged to be as obscure and as intellectually rigorous in your composition as you could possibly be and if that if that meant that only two people on the planet could ever understand it (laughs) more is the better oh wow so you know it's but it's not about that now so what I was trying to do was a million miles away from that but when I first tried to conjure up and and, and actually I remember being signed by a company that's now EMI was hit and run music and going to an, an amazing studio called Air Studios Pianistically, of course, in terms of my skill, I was ready. But in terms of my sensibility and my experience and my readiness to meet the world, I was not ready. And the album that I made was just unreachable for so many people. It was atonal. Um, it you know, had no, as my father-in-law would say, it had no tunes. <laughs> And consequently, you know, it was, it just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for that. I didn't know really. And so it took me a long time to get rid of all the baggage, everything that I had studied. It took me a long time to get back to the four or five year old boy who just improvised on the piano. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's just so fascinating, though, because I guess it makes sense in hindsight, surely. Like at the time, Mm. you think you're creating like something masterful and you're excited and you're in this space and it's just like bloody hell, I think. I think I've done it. (laughs) 
Um, yeah. And you're, you think, no, I did. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah, I couldn't and, imagine. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then it gets relegated to the top drawer, never, ever to be seen again. Just so wild. And I, and, and I, no, it was. I remember. And I was signed to this company, as I say, Hit and Run. They had people like Genesis. They had Nigel Kennedy, who was a big noise at that time, yeah. still is. As Wad. I was the only classical guy in this company. And with a really visionary A&R artist and repertoire executive called Johnny Sterling, who was a great, great man. Mm-hmm. And he saw this lane, the lane that I'm in, the lane that, you know, other artists as well inhabit. He saw this way, way back before anyone else did. I had to go back to the drawing board. I remember literally I went back to the library. <laughs> Brilliant. Back to I don't your mean that metaphorically. <laughs> I, mean, I, <laughs> I mean, literally, I went back to the British library. And, you know, all the way through those times, the one thing that I missed was the meanness. I never for one moment thought the thing I should be selling, if I can say that, Mm. is me. Yeah. I never thought, you know, I did, I mean, I was working with girl bands, like classical bands, all sorts of things. Never once did I stop and think, hang on a minute, it's me I should be concentrating on. Yeah. And it took someone other than me to say that to me. And uh, and that's really how I, it's a long, it was a long, long road, but it took somebody else to say, what are you doing? It's you. That's the proposition. Yeah, that's so powerful and impactful. And it's, I'm sure that's true for a lot of people that mm. it's really hard to see in yourself what you bring to the table, what you have to offer and what value you bring. Was there a profound moment where that happened or was it really just something that came into yourself over time and started to really feel it and sense it and know that now you're producing something that's authentically good and genuinely got you in it? Yeah, I think when I was in my very, very classical days doing concerts, you know, I remember doing things like Classical FM, for instance, Classical FM used to have this live thing and I remember doing live, a live Russian program of Balakarev and Rachmaninoff and all these kinds of guys. And, you know, practicing for 10, 12 hours a day and going off and, and having success, you know, as, as that kind of person, never feeling that was me, never feeling that was all of me. Mm. And only in the end of my concerts did I used to improvise and ask the audience for themes and then come out. And that's when I felt totally free. I think later on when I sort of, when I did, when did I feel that I sort of was totally me? I'd, I think, you know, obviously, making albums as me, writing, producing, and using every part of me, all, all the parts of my my creativity and my study, I guess, is the most authentic version of me. Mm-hmm. This is where I feel I can express anything that I want to express. But I think it's a luxury to be able to do that. I don't think that's you know, it would be wrong of me to say, unless you are doing that, then you're not being true to yourself. I mean, ultimately, people do what they can in this world. Mm-hmm. You make a living. And if that, and sometimes that might be 50% of you, sometimes it might be 60%. I always remember when I was a young boy, my dad, one of his many sayings, or as you know, as one of my teachers at the Guildhall, I was doing something I didn't particularly enjoy. And I told my teacher I, I'm not really enjoying it. He said, who said you were supposed to enjoy everything <laughs> that you did? And so but it was very true. I think um, I'm just conscious that I'm very lucky to be doing what I'm doing. And, you know, if you can get that 50, 60, 
70% of what you really want. I think you are very fortunate. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I think, thank you for saying that for a start, because I think that's just honest. And mm. it is important to say that actually there are going to be parts of your career where you're going to have to take a job or you're going to have to do something that doesn't always align but I guess that you'll know most people don't tend to deviate massively far from their own values mm. or moral code so mm. yeah I think I think it's just an honest thing to say that there's going to be aspects of you that you can bring to the table but it's not always going to be 100% yeah. all of the time that's that's fair enough absolutely and I think that's okay and particularly now that's never been true you know I, I hats off to all those people who are who are doing what they have to do at this really difficult time in order to support their families and and what have you and uh you know that takes strength it takes bravery in the knowledge that hopefully we'll we'll get over the horizon to a brighter place obviously i'm curious to know what you are working on getting better at right now well i i'm always working on getting better at things i think that um the honest answer is i'm always trying to be grateful and I think patience. I think I'm I'm working on being being a more patient. I'm not terribly patient, so I think that's <laughs> an area I can, which no, I'm not. I can definitely definitely improve in that area. What are you impatient about, actually? <laughs> Honestly, I find it very difficult if people don't bring the best of themselves. Fair enough. I guess you partly answered this earlier, but I do want to know how you know more generally what good sounds like. And the difference between something that you're just like, this could never, this could never pass. This is not good enough mm. <laughs> versus something mm. that you're like, mm. actually, this is ready. And do you get to that mm. point of it's ready? I know it's ready. I'm completely happy with it. Or is there still like a, mm. if you continued on in that process, you'd still find things wrong? That's a really good question. Um, firstly, and yes, I, I do know now. And I don't think it's magic for me. Mm. My process is that I write furiously when I'm in that stage where I know that I have to produce a body of work for something, whether, it, you know, whatever that body of work might be, an album or, a, you know, film or something. I write much more than would ever be required, but I write in fragments, mm -hmm. tiny little fragments. I collate those fragments and then I ponder and reflect over time on those things. They might be two, three years later, four years later, on those things which are really worthy, not of my attention, but of my audience's attention. Those things which I think really are worthy of um, of their time. Okay. Um, and then, so from, a, I don't know, 100 fragments, I might focus on 10, 12, 13 things. And I will develop them knowing already that they are of value. Okay. And then the process then of writing is writing very much like a, almost like a maths equation where I'll work things out in such a way that it couldn't have ever been written any other way. No, that's one way. Or I'll just improvise something and listen back and just annotate that. But it's always after that process of having so much material, that um, brutal kind of culling process is really important to me. And then I know because I know when it's authentic. It's not so much when it's good. I know when it's true. Right. Okay. And that's the moment where I feel I'm able to let go. Amazing. 
That's such a great answer. I don't think anyone's, I've spoken, spoken to a lot of authors and they're just like, I am never finished. <laughs> it's like really? they have to, the editors have to pry it from their hands and just be like, I'm yeah. taking this now, like go away. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mallory Blackman's like, I if I held on to it for any longer, she just says, done is better than perfect and that was her kind of philosophy so it's quite nice to have like a very different take on that question i'm gonna see if i can apply that kind of whole like dive deep into just pulling all of my thoughts and ideas into one big moment and then taking it all apart and seeing what has value and what hasn't because i i could just procrastinate on the and find it so daunting to just start (laughs) in the process that it just doesn't get done so i think that's really useful it is daunting though that that idea of freezing there can be so much to do. You can have so many ideas that you can be frozen in that moment, yeah, can't you? Exactly. Of thinking, where do I start? But I think quite often it's and not being afraid to write utter rubbish, really. <laughs> and that's that's the other thing. Yeah. It's not being afraid to to be totally critical of oneself. I think that's really, really important. Yeah, that's really useful advice. Thank you so much. And yeah, you're completely right. It's just not judging yourself and just going through that process of yeah, getting it out for absolutely. sure. Yes. So final question, mm. what is the best advice you've ever received and the worst advice you've ever received? So the best advice I've ever received, would I think I may have made um, fleeting mention of this gentleman earlier on in the conversation, but it would be my father-in-law. I remember presenting a piece of music to him and being terribly proud of it. It was probably a, a clever piece of music I, I would say in inverted commas in, as um, <laughs> in terms of complexity mm-hmm. and I remember him turning to me <laughs> and just saying yeah Alexis that's great but where are the tunes <laughs> <laughs> he just wanted to and dance Alexis he just wanted to dance <laughs> he yeah well, actually he just wanted to whistle oh right and even better and he wanted to hum he wanted to hum it back and do you know what i think so many people like a good tune yeah exactly <laughs> and in terms of the worst advice i don't think i've ever had any bad advice and i don't i don't mean that i mean that everything anyone has ever said to me i've taken on board and it's either led me to a place or led me to reflect and think well actually no i don't want to do that and i don't want to do that that's a very like lovely way to answer that question <laughs> because it it says like I take it and even if it didn't work for me I still have found value in it there's still gratitude yeah and that's that's kind of awesome I think so excellent thank you so much (laughs) no thank you so much it's been a real pleasure to speak to you thank you oh I feel blessed and highly favored to have spoken to Alexis today His story and journey is truly inspiring and is a testament to what happens when talent and opportunity collide and the result is a groundbreaking career. You can follow Alexis on social media at Alexis French and that's French spelt with a double F at the beginning, F-F-R-E-N-C-H. And check out his latest album, Dreamland. For updates on Wannabe, follow Content is Queen on Twitter at Content is QN and Instagram at Content is Queen HQ. Content is Queen has now officially opened up two podcast studios in Peckham and in Somerset House. If you have a story you are dying to tell through our podcast, then head to contentisqueen.org and join our waiting list to get access to our studios. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends via your Insta stories. We've pulled some amazing quotes from the episode, which you can reshare via Instagram and Twitter. This podcast is proudly a Content is Queen production. As always, huge love and hugs to Ellie Clifford for pulling this episode out of the bag this week. And thank you for listening. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.